Amen. As you're seated, you may turn in your copy of the scriptures to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 17 tonight, Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, and I'll begin in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith or faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, let's pray one final time asking God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for this privilege to gather again today to hear from your word, to sing your praises, to have fellowship with one another uh, in you. We pray that this time uh, in your word is profitable, that you might open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by reading another scripture uh, from Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25, just uh, the first verses here. This is the people of God are, are on the, the plains of Moab. And this is uh, after the incident of, of Balaam uh, trying to uh, bring a curse upon the people of Israel. But he actually brings uh, a, a blessing on them. But he counsels Balak, the, the king of Moab, because he really wants the gain that he can get from bringing ill to the people of God. So he counsels Balak and he says, well, put, uh, use your women to seduce uh, the, the men of Israel so that they might partake of your gods and that they might partake of your culture and then if you become very similar in culture, they're no longer a threat to you. And, and that's the advice, and then it, it's actually successful in, in some ways, and this is what we read in Numbers 25. Uh, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel." And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. 
Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And so Balaam's counsel of, of, of compromising the culture, of seducing the people of Israel, was so successful that 25,000 people lose their lives because they accepted of this seduction. And what was the temptation for the, the, the people of God here? It was the temptation of syncretism, of meshing religious beliefs and practices from various religion and treating them as on equal footing. And as we come to, to Pergamum tonight, this account is actually referenced of Balaam and this kind of, of counsel and teaching was going on in this church, and not in the same way, but by way of analogy, of, of the temptation to syncretism. And, and Jesus confronts this church and he calls this church to repent of its syncretism. And so we will discuss that this evening. But as you'll see in your outline, familiar uh, as, as we've gone through these churches now, uh, number one there, the church address. Pergamum was a, a city in Asia Minor, 65 miles north of Smyrna. Unlike Smyrna in Ephesus, uh, Pergamum was not a, a harbor city. It was 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. But nevertheless, it was a developed city. It had all of the luxuries that a, that a developed city could have in that day that we've discussed before in other cities. In particular, it was known for its great library. Uh, it was second only to the library in Alexandria in the ancient uh, world. It was a, a judicial center for, for Rome that the proconsul uh, would hear the cases from the surrounding region, region in uh, Pergamum. Uh, geographically significant to the, the town is behind the main part of the city was an acropolis, a raised area. And on that acrop acropolis was, a, was uh, many different temples uh, to various deities. That the religion that we see in this uh, city was the same pagan uh, religion that we've seen in Ephesus and Smyrna with its own unique uh, emphases. That one of those temples in, in, on that Acropolis in, in Pergamum uh, was a temple to, the, uh, to Zeus. And there was a large altar there that was dedicated to Zeus. The, the gods and goddesses of Athena and Demeter and Dionysus were also worshipped in this city. Unique to this city was, was the cult of Asclepius. Asclepius was the serpent god of healing, and uh, this was, a, this was a, a city known for its, its healing and for its medicine, so tailored to its medical practice was this cult of Asclepius uh, that you would, you would come and be healed, and so your doctor would prescribe various things for you to do, and part of it was some level of ritual to this god of Asclepius that you could be healed. And so that symbol of a serpent became a symbol of the city of Pergamum. And in fact, today, if, if you know the modern sign of, of you know on an ambulance with the, the star of life and the, the snake on the pole, that's Asclepius, and then that's an ancient. Uh, symbol for healing. As we saw in other cities, the, the imperial cult was alive and well here, that Pergamum was the first city to build a temple to a Roman ruler. It was the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor, and so they were a temple warden, a, a unique term, of a temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar. And so they would have worshipped uh, uh, the imperial cult uh, like uh, the other cities here. And, and these weren't just uh, you know, optional religious practices. As, as these temples are raised up high, they are central to the city. And so central to being a citizen in Pergamum was participating in the cultic life. 
As one writer notes, life in such a political religious center put all the more pressure on the church to pay public homage to Caesar as a deity, refusal of which meant high treason to the state. And so as we'll see, there is going to be a, a, a great pressure on this church to conform, to conform to the the religious practices of its day. And, and not don't deny your practices, but just accept ours along, along with yours, and, and everything will be okay. We don't know exactly when the church began in Pergamum. We're never told except here about Pergamum, but likely it, it, it probably had a result of Paul's missionary efforts through Asia Minor that maybe someone was converted in a city where Paul was and, and took the gospel uh, back to Pergamum. We're not sure, but nevertheless, by the later half of the first century, a Christian church is established there. And so when we talk about the, the pagan environment, we, we noted before that in many ways, all of the environments of each church are the same. They're thoroughly pagan. Uh, all of the religious practices, are, are, in terms of the options, are pretty much the same. That the point of emphasis for us and of importance is not so much the environment uh, that each church is in, uh, but the response of the church to the environment that it's in. And so we'll look at the, the church's response to this a pagan culture tonight. So that's the church address. Number two in your outline, the characteristic of Christ emphasize. We noted in every letter, some uh, emphasis of Jesus' character is noted as Jesus addresses uh, each church. And here, uh, the characteristic of Christ emphasize is that he has a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. We saw the sharp two-edged sword in, in chapter 1, verse 16. John's vision of the glorified Christ from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And so, so Jesus says, I'm writing to you the one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The sword is a symbol, it's a death-wielding instrument. It's a symbol of, of the ability to, to, and authority to carry out uh, death and conquering. That, 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 this is how it's used in the scripture, that in Romans chapter 13, that the government has been given the sword, uh, which is it's a level of authority and, and, and such to, to, to the extent that they, they are... Uh, allowed to practice capital punishment. We will see later in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus does use this sword from his mouth. We're told in Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus comes... And, and, and he brings death and judgment on his enemies. And he has that authority, and that's what's being symbolized here. Jesus has death-wielding, judgment-bringing authority. And notice, he's not holding a sword in his hand. That's what we would think. The sword is coming out of his mouth. Well, what is the, uh, the significance here? I think part of it is, is uh, who was infecting the church. The false teachers are infecting the church with their mouths and their teaching, and Jesus is going to judge them from his mouth with the sword that comes from his mouth. Or rather, we have the word of God uh, bringing uh, his words of judgment and condemnation on these false teachers. And this is a unique characteristic uh, of Christ to emphasize. We think of our, our, the letter to Smyrna. Jesus told them, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. That's a great comforting truth. But he comes to this church and says, I'm the one that has the double-edged sword coming from my mouth. And, and, and that sort of hints at what Jesus is going to say 
to this church. So that's the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Number three, the commendation given. Once again, Jesus says, I know. We have this benevolent omniscience. Jesus knows the exact situation of his people. He knows the exact situation of of his church, both good and bad. And he reminds this church by way of commendation, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Jesus' comprehensive and compassionate eye reaches this church and knows exactly the situation it is. And where does this church live? Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. This would be, I don't know if I'd want to live where Satan's throne is. That You are in the throne of the very enemy. Now, what is Satan's throne? What is meant by this? Well, there's a variety of opinions in commentators, and I don't necessarily think we can know for sure of a specific reference because all of the temples uh, and, and pagan deity that we just reviewed uh, are equal opportunity for the, the throne of Satan. That Some view the throne of Satan as this altar to Zeus, this very large altar, and they they think, well, this is just a symbolically here. Uh, the church would recall that and think it's the, it's the throne of Satan. Uh, some would think it has to do with the cult of Asclepius because he's, he's a serpent god. And so that's associated with Satan. And because Asclepius was so uh, worshipped in this city that that's why it's called where Pergamum is called where Satan's throne is. Some people think this is, this is a reference to the imperial temple that, that worshipped Augustus in, in Roma. That's why. Some people think this is called where Satan's throne is because this is where we see the first martyr mentioned in the, in the letters to the churches. But I think it could be a, 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 a difficult to pin one of those specific references. In fact, it could have reference to all of these pagan activities as they are carried out on that raised Acropolis. You know, this is Satan's throne, a, a, a conglomeration of all sorts of prostitution against the holy God. The point here. You know, whether we, what we know is specific or not about that, that reference, is that satanic influence and activity is rampant in this city. Even if we don't know what Satan's throne is, we just know, okay, Satan has a presence in this city, and it's great. Where the king's throne is, is where his influence is most felt. That if you lived off in, in the boonies of the kingdom, the king can't have his eye on you as close as if you lived right where his throne was. And so in some ways this church was under unique uh, uh, demonic uh, activity and pressure. And yet, Jesus said, in the midst of living where Satan's very throne is, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith or you did not deny faith in me. That despite all of the opposition and pressure uh, and and demonic activity that is occurring in, in your city, you hold fast my name. You have not shrunk away from your testimony concerning me. And he gives, I think, and he's referencing a particular instance here where he says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. That not only did do you stand the test in general and hold fast to my name, that Jesus said, in the midst of this man's martyrdom, you held fast to my name. We don't really know much about Antipas. There are, there, there are some traditions that say he was a leader in, in Pergamum. We, none of this is necessarily verifiable. 
And he was tried, and, and he was put to death. And the tradition is, and there's no way of proving this, is that he was placed in a hollow bronze bowl, which was heated until he was roasted to death. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but it makes a great martyrdom story, and so it, it has uh, been passed on. But nevertheless, this man was put to death for Christ. So likely this was, this was, a, this was a trial. This was a, he was put to death by the Roman authorities. It was not just some uh, rogue incident. And Jesus calls Antipas my faithful witness, which, which means that he was likely tried. And, and part of what he was tried for is he probably wouldn't participate in, in the imperial cult or, or the religious worship of the city. And, G, and, and he was put to death. And Jesus says, in the midst of that, you, you didn't deny faith in me. That it would have been very easy... And say Antipas was a leader in the church, that, that he's arrested and he's getting all of this pressure and he's even being tried with a sentence of death. It could have been easy as a church to say, uh, well, we're not really associated with him. He, he's a bit radical. You know, we're, 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 good, we're good people. And, and soften your stance and soften your uh, commitment. So there would have been a temptation to disassociate with Antipas. But such actions would not have been merely an abandonment of Antipas. It would have been abandonment of Christ himself. And, and Jesus commenced this church because they didn't abandon Antipas and they didn't abandon uh, Christ in the midst of, of opposition and even threat of death. And Jesus says, you held fast my name. You were unashamed of, of me. You risked your life for me, and I commend you for that. Contrast this to Jesus' own disciples, that the authorities come and they scatter. That Jesus uh, tells this church, you, you held fast, and I commend that to you. But he has something to correct, which, which moves us to number four in our outline. The correction and call to repentance. Verse 14, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. In the church to Ephesus, Jesus says, I have this against you. One thing. Now to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, I have a few things against you which should make a church feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, what, and what, what, what were these things? First, this teaching of Balaam. Jesus said, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And, and most of us may be familiar with the, the Balaam story, but as I noted in the beginning, Balaam was some sort of diviner or prophet. He was called upon by the king of, of Moab, Balak, to come and curse Israel as Israel was encroaching on the plains of Moab. Balak had heard what they had done to the Amorites, and he's scared, and the people are scared, and he knows, I need I need divine help if I'm going to conquer this people. So if I can get this diviner man to come and, and put a curse, then that would, be, that would be helpful. And Balaam is initially uh, hesitant, but he comes. And, and he comes uh, because he would love to curse the people of Israel. And in fact, he wouldn't have if God wouldn't have threatened his life and turned that cursing into blessing. Balaam was not a godly man. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.15 2, 2, that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. He wanted paid. He wanted to do what the king of Balak wanted him to do, but God didn't allow him to do it. In fact, God uses him to bring, to, to, we have records and numbers of great prophecies from Balaam of Israel's future. 
So he can't curse them, so he, he advises Balak, uh, well, do this. Send your women to the men of Israel, have them entice the men, have the women bring them into this, the, the pagan worship, and then as you assimilate the cultures, they'll, you'll just sort of mesh together, and then you won't have to worry about a conflict. Who's going to war against their own family? And that worked. We, we read that account in Numbers 25. In many ways. If it wasn't for uh, the righteous leaders of the nation, they probably would have defected uh, to this. And so Jesus says, you have in, in Pergamum here some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. That th- this was not uh, the exact situation, but by way of analogy, there were some in this church that likely advocated a greater assimilation into the pagan cultures that said it's okay to participate in, in, in these practices. It's fine. Maybe they taught them that, you know, you don't have to worry about, uh, you don't actually believe this, but in order to keep the peace, you can just participate externally, but in your heart is not there. And where would have this, this come? Well, in several instances in society, there would have been pressure to participate in the pagan rituals. That there would have been public festivals that would have been citywide that would have put pressure on all citizens to participate in, in all of the pagan idolatrous practices that would have occurred. That in your uh, association, your work association, there may have been a specific deity associated with your trade and you were, you were expected to offer sacrifices to that deity if you wanted to succeed in your trade. And so maybe some advocated, well, that's okay. You've got to keep your job, right? And so you can go ahead and offer the sacrifices. Maybe it was just to keep peace with their, their pagan family members or friends or neighbors. But likely the driving force behind this was to bring greater peace. Uh, to, to put the pressure off of, of the persecution that, hey, we don't need to be persecuted by these people. We'll just accept some of their practices and, and it'll be fine. And, and what, uh, but the reality was, this was a grave compromise. Because it was leading the people to practice idolatry. Jesus says the the result here is that they eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That likely they were participating in the pagan cult in some sense. And I don't think this is an instance where Paul's addressing 1 Corinthians uh, that you're in the marketplace and you buy meat, don't ask any questions uh, because things could have been offered to, to, sacrifice, uh, to sacrifice to pagan deities. That this was likely participating in uh, these pagan rituals. That these Greco-Roman sacrifices were sometimes called herothuta, sacred sacrifices. Or they could be called theothuta, sacrifices to gods. But the Bible calls them idolathuta, sacrifice to idols. That in, in, in what you were actually thinking was going to a god is no god, and is in fact demonic. So these people were, were participating in idolatry. And, and Jesus said part of Balaam's uh, teaching was the people practiced sexual morality, which was real sexual morality in the day. Likely here, it's probably not real sexual morality. It probably is a metaphor for religious infidelity. Now, it could be. They could have been practicing sexual morality if it were related to the, the, the pagan cults. But likely this has to do with a, with a very consistent metaphor that we get in the Old Testament of of this uh, sexual morality as a metaphor for religious infidelity. Remember, Hosea, the prophet, he's told 
Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That Israel was in a covenant relationship with God, similar to the covenant relationship with with a, a, a husband and a wife. And to go and worship other gods is the same as for a husband or wife uh, to go and, and have sexual relations with another person, not their spouse. This is uh, grave infidelity. And, and we see this metaphor in, in the Old Testament, particularly in Hosea in Ezekiel chapter 16 and, and in 22, this, uh, this idea of, of uh, prostituting yourself. So their practice in idolatry in, the, in, in, Pega, in Pergamum was equivalent to sexual immorality, that they were unfaithful to their God. They were participating in sexual morality. And secondly, there was another group there, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who we saw in the church in Ephesus, which the church in Ephesus rejected this teaching, but the church in Pergamum accepted this teaching, at least some people did. And it tells us that this teaching is very similar to the teaching of Balaam. You also have there, or in the same manner you have there, who who teach... Uh, the, the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That the Nicolaitans, in some ways, uh, we don't know what is unique about this teaching, but they also uh, advocated uh, it's okay to participate in idolatrous pagan practices. And Jesus would have nothing of this. Jesus wants to be first and only the Supreme Lord and the one worshipped by his church. The church was not to dabble in the pagan cult. And this goes back to to the staunch monotheism of the Old Testament that Israel was told, I am the Lord. You, You worship me and no others. And the history of Israel is a history of failure to do that. And it's still creeping in the church here in Pergamum. So Jesus calls them to repent. Repent. And if not, verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen to the strong language of Jesus. You all better repent of this or I'm going to come and I'm going to use that sword in my mouth and I'm going to deal with these false teachers. That if you don't deal with them, I'm going to deal with them. That Jesus here is the, is the one who actually preserves his church and the purity of his church. And we see Jesus only uses his sword out of his mouth against his enemies. So these are not Christians. These false teachers... And he will not have them continually corrupting uh, his sheep. And so he's coming with the sword from his mouth and he's going to deal with them. Number five, the consolation for heeding the correction. Jesus says to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So two things Jesus promises to those who conquer here. Maybe you read this this afternoon and you're thinking, what in the world is the hidden manna? And what in the world is, is white stone? And maybe you cheated and you looked at your study Bible notes and, and you know, and that's okay. But let's look here at the, the hidden manna. Jesus says, I'll give you the hidden manna. There was a Jewish tradition that said that when the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah or some angel preserved the Ark of the Covenant. And we know that in the Ark of the Covenant was placed uh, this manna. And that was preserved. And this manna would be revealed in the Messianic age and be given 
uh, to the people of God once again. And I don't think John is necessarily saying that's a true uh, reality, but I think that maybe he's picking up on some of this tradition to say that the Jews uh, believe that this manna is stored up to the time of the Messiah. And John's saying, the time of the Messiah has arrived. Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, surprisingly, Jesus is the bread of life, this manna from heaven. And he has been hidden, and now he is revealed, and this bread brings true life. So if you are holding fast to Christ, he is the true manna of heaven. And so to to be given the hidden manna is to be given Christ, and to be given Christ is to be given life. So if you conquer If you overcome, Jesus says, you will have real, eternal life. If you repent. Secondly, Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone with a a new name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Three things we have to understand. What's the stone? What's the the new name? And, And why does the person who receives it, only know that name. In this culture, in like a trial, if someone was found guilty, uh, the, the jury would put forward a black pebble stone. If the jury uh, thought the, the man or woman was uh, innocent, they would put the white stone forward in terms of of voting. Now, I think there, people have different opinions of what that means, but <clears throat> I think this is what this is a reference here, that the white stone is a, is a representation of acquittal. That Jesus is giving these individuals who are facing, some have faced real uh, guilty sentences in their real uh, local governments, And Jesus says in in the court of heaven, if you hold fast to me, you are not guilty. And and this stone, though, has a new name on it. What's the name? I think it's the name of Christ. If you look over in in chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus, once again, at the end of of a letter here, and this is to the one in Philadelphia, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall we go out. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I'm going to write my new name on you who is a pillar in the temple of God. Similarly, at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The only name ever associated with believers is the name of Christ. We say, well, why is it new? It's new in the sense of prophetic fulfillment. That the culmination of of the ages has has come. That Jesus has come as Messiah. He has revealed himself. He He has offered his perfect life as a sacrifice. He has dealt with sin. He has been raised from the dead. He holds the keys of, of sin and death and Hades. And he's coming back to make all things new. And all of this is secure in his in his redemption. And so he's he has a new name. And only the one who receives this name knows the name. What's the point with that? As one commentator notes, people know Jesus' name. 
The point is that only those who receive the white stone, who are vindicated by Christ, know what his lordship means. They, only, they are the ones that really know his name. That only those in Christ know the name of Christ. So Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone with a new name on it. It's my name. So summary, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus says, if you hold fast to me, if you have faith in me, you will be acquitted in the court of heaven. I am the only vote that matters here, and I will give my vote of acquittal to you, and that is assured because my name is on that voting pebble. And you conquer, and you are vindicated, not because you are perfectly righteous in and of yourselves, but you conquer because I have conquered, and I have shed my blood for you, and I have ransomed you, and I will acquit you. So hold fast to me, the true bread from heaven, and you will have life. That's the promise. And and the promise is the same in, in every of these letters to the overcomer. It's eternal life. It's just a different image used every time. So Jesus says, I'll give you that hidden manna. I'll give you that white stone of acquittal. You will be found innocent at the end of the age. And what a great promise. I mean, here is a church in great sin. They're practicing, not all, but some were practicing idolatry. And Jesus said, if if you repent, if you hold fast to me, you will be innocent and you will have life eternal. What a great promise. Which, if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, it doesn't matter how bad you think you are. It doesn't matter if you've participated in idolatrous actions where the throne of Satan is. Jesus extends to you the invitation to come. If you come, he will give you that hidden manna. He will give you that white stone of acquittal and you will be saved and found innocent in the day of judgment and you will have life eternal with Him. So that's Jesus' consolation and what a consolation it is to this church. Finally, number six, the connection to our lives and church. There are many various points of application. There are just four here, briefly, to cover, I think, that are important. A there. Beware of the slide to syncretism. Beware of the slide to syncretism. Remember, syncretism is a meshing of religious beliefs and practices Jesus confronts this church that was trying to worship God and and, and follow Christ, but also participate in idolatrous activities, and, and Jesus would have none of that. So beware of this easily traveled road where the cultural norms around us are assimilated into the church And these cultural norms are contrary to Scripture and bring serious compromise to the church. And this is something we must be ever vigilant against because the culture is the air we breathe. And not everything in the culture is, is, you know, to be uh, excluded. But anything in the culture needs to be uh, taken captive thought to obey Christ. It needs to be filtered through the Word of God. And there are clear things in our culture that are contrary to Scripture that are seeking to infect and infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ and we might be tempted to compromise. And what might be the reason given? Well, we just want to keep the peace, don't we? We just want to keep our church building, and so we have to compromise in some way to to keep our building. We just heard of this in our prayer meeting. 
in China, they're, they're now requiring that any sort of sponsored church, their measures that would require, I, I think it was literature, to the Communist Party to be posted in the, in the church building. And the, the one pastor uh, had said that you might as well join the Communist Party. So Satan's tactics are not new. What's the point there, you know? We do not want to give equal credence to uh, the Communist Party of China and the Church of Jesus Christ. So rather to lose your government status and to lose your your supposed freedom to worship uh, than to to make that uh, unclear to the culture of where you stand. In our culture, this is coming through the LGBTQ agenda. It hasn't quite, we're not quite forced as a church or being put pressure to change anything, but you probably feel it in your workplace that you, you are now uh, have to participate in, in <clears throat> diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings and not just participate in them, you now have to show your, how are you going to implement some of these principles and there's going to be a line that it's, it's going to come where it's going to be clear. I'm compromising my, my Christian convictions uh, to go along with this. Christian institutions of, of higher education, Christian nonprofit organizations are, are being pressured to, and some have given into this agenda. And, and <clears throat> we must be very clear because the gospel is at stake. We also must beware in, in the slide to syncretism that the Bible doesn't separate external action from internal conviction. Well, I'll go along with this stuff, but I, I got my fingers crossed behind my back. I'm not really believing this stuff. But by your very action, you, you do. So beware of the, the slide uh, to syncretism. I think a great example, uh, in, a, in a bad way, is the Protestant mainline denominations of, of our nation. Of the, of these are denominations that began in solid biblical foundation, and, and subtly but surely over the years, over issue after issue, there was compromise, and now you cannot distinguish these church from from some left-wing activist organization except for religious language. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is lost. So beware of the slide to syncretism. Secondly here, be Christ alone is worthy of worship. You know this, but it's helpful to remind us. As a husband... Or a wife would, would want full, committed faithfulness from their spouse and would be aghast if that spouse uh, uh, participated in, in intimate relations with someone but themselves. Christ wants our soul allegiance. That no idolatry is to be allowed in our lives. What is idolatry? Treating anything before God or as a God. We say, well, Jesus is still preeminent. But that other part of the definition is important. You cannot subscribe anything that is only worthy to the divine to anything else. Jesus alone is worthy of worship. See, Don't tolerate false doctrine. That serious false doctrine is is, uh, creeping into this church and it's allowed to exist. And first and foremost to respond to this should have been the the church leaders. Maybe they were the ones... uh, spouting it. 
And they should have stopped this. But secondly, there's a corporate responsibility here. Jesus calls this whole church to repent. You're tolerating the false doctrine. So the point is, if the church leaders are not taking care of this false doctrine, there is a responsibility of accountability for the teaching there. That, you know, if, if, if tomorrow, this, this is not going to happen, if tomorrow, uh, you know, Pastor Mitch uh, changes his position on, on uh, homosexuality and says it's okay, and he convinces me, and he convinces Tim, and he convinces uh, the deacons, I hope there's a revolt in the, in the congregation that the people of God and all of the people of God should not tolerate false doctrine. Finally, be unashamed of the prisoner of Christ. Now this is something that may not be easily applied in our life, but maybe something we store up uh, for future days. That this church stood with Antipas in his hour of trial. And we, as the church, should stand with those who who face a real persecution and imprisonment for uh, the gospel. That Paul commends this in his letter to uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. It's, It's easy to be ashamed, Timothy, uh, you know, it's this glorious gospel, and, but I'm the apostle and I'm in prison. And it's easy to be ashamed when in, in the culture's eyes we're, we're the scum of the earth. But don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. And, in, and later in that chapter, in verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Likely he came to his his prison cell. So he would associate with this convict, as it were. And so as as we have interaction or or whatever, don't be ashamed of the prisoner of Christ. And maybe it's a co-worker who's who's standing up for Christ and and, and making uh, some, some bold claims, but claims that need to be made in your workplace. And it may be tempting for you to say, I'm going to distance myself from him. It might cause problems with my job security too. Where the right thing to be is to stand with him as, as far as he stands for the truth. So be unashamed of the prisoner of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter to the church in Pergamum. We thank you that you care for the purity of your church. We pray that you search our hearts and our lives, Lord, that we might be found faithful, holding fast to Christ, unashamed of your name in this pagan culture. Apply your word to our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.